Well, here we go. Well, welcome. Um, uh, especially if you're new here today, if you're coming back after a while, it's uh, good to have you here. Um, a couple of reminders as we get going. Uh, good to have your bulletins there. Don't forget. Like little comment cards, you can fill out those and put a comment in and uh, we'll have a, a moment to, for questions at the end as well. The boxes at the back, um, that'll be great. Please use those. Wonderful. Well, there's a story, uh, a true story, I believe, um, as far as true on the internet can be. Uh, there's a blind man who was travelling with his guide dog, um, flying one of those regional express, you know, those regional express flights, small plane, small airports, that sort of thing. Uh, so he was flying, going on holiday on this regional express flight in country New South Wales. And halfway through the journey, the plane had to stop and uh, they had to refuel and people had to go uh, disembark and some people had to come on the plane, so a bit of a swap around and that type of thing going on. So the blind man thought, well, this is a good opportunity to see if I can get someone to take my dog for a walk. Needs a bit of a stretch of the legs, uh, very sensible, and um, just so I can do its business, that sort of thing, uh, make it a bit more comfortable. And being a friendly country airline, uh, well, the, the most obvious person to ask, of course, would be the pilot. And so uh, this blind man with his dog came up to the captain and he said, oh, Captain, would you mind taking my dog for a walk? And he said, well, of course I don't mind taking your dog for a walk. I'll take your dog for a walk. I'll stretch the legs. People will get on and off. It'll be fine. Now, on this particular day, uh, it was also a bright, sunny day. And so um, as the captain left the plane uh, with the guide dog, it was quite sunny, and so he slipped on his sunglasses, dark black sunglasses. It's hardly a very comforting sight, is it? People getting on the plane, boarding, and here is the captain in full uniform, walking around. <laughs> with his sunglasses on and a guide dog. Uh, <laughs> see, what appeared to be one thing, in fact, uh, in reality, was something completely different. Appearances didn't always tell the truth of what was really going on. And friends, that's the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, in appearance, it's foolishness and weakness. Here is the Son of God on, on a crucified, uh, crucified on a cross. But in reality, the Bible says it's the wisdom and power of God. Now, in the ancient world, you see, the cross, well, the cross was, was, uh, was uh, the ultimate in humiliation. To end your life on a cross, uh, naked and helpless, um, slowly dying in front of all, it was a disgrace. It was shame like no other. And in fact, the idea of someone hanging a cross around their necks so to adorn their bodies, as many do today, well, for them, back then, that would seem completely grotesque. An item of torture hanging around your neck, very strange. You wouldn't even talk about crucifixion in polite company. You wouldn't do it. On the cross, you were nothing. On the cross, you were a nobody. You're a fool. And if you ever were a somebody, well, you certainly were not one now. So, why does God use the weakness of the cross to save? Why does God use this foolish and embarrassing, humiliating uh, <laughs> method of torture to save? Why does he do that? That's our question for today. Uh, grab your Bibles if you don't already have them open. 
and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses 18 to 2 verse 5, if you want to grab a Bible, go and get one. Um, it's on page 1128. It'd be useful to have that outline open in front of you. It's got a picture in it, so that makes it especially good. You'll see there's three main headings on your outline, uh, which I hope will make things clearer for us this morning. And we're following the three main sections of our passage. You can see there, God's foolishness, Jesus crucified like a nobody. God's foolishness, God saves the nobodies. And God's foolishness, God uses the nobodies. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us read his word and to have ears that listen and hearts that are open to receive what he says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that you are a God who loves and cares for us. Thank you for this church. We pray, Lord, that we would um, uh, respond with faithfulness and trust and obedience to what you have to say to us. Help us to have open hearts, um, open ears to hear your word. Help me to speak faithfully and carefully in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's foolishness, Jesus Christ crucified like a nobody. Now you'll see in your outline, I've got the picture up here as well, uh, I've included this, it's actually a copy of um, some ancient graffiti of all things. Graffiti. Uh, I don't know how they actually painted it, but it was discovered or scratched in rock, um, discovered in Rome, dated about the first century, early second century BC, uh, sorry, AD. It's very, it's very well known in archaeological circles. It demonstrates public, the public opinion at the time that we've been talking about, that, that, of, uh, that of Christians, the public opinion of Christians and, and of the cross itself. You see, it mocks Jesus. Do you see that there's a donkey? Uh, Jesus is depicted as a donkey on the cross. You see the cross there. A fool, the opposite of wisdom, of course, on a cross and below him, you see on the left-hand side there, this little man with his hand up, this little man is worshipping. This man is worshipping this God, uh, this Jesus on a, on a cross, this donkey on a cross. And the Greek underneath reads, Alexa Menos, it's his name, worships his God. It's the translation of it. It's quite, um, uh, well, it's quite insightful, really, isn't it? It tells us a lot about what people thought at the time. Alexa Menos worships, worships his God, this fool, this weak man on a cross. What an idiot. But when we read verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, we see something quite different, don't we? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, last week we saw in verse 17, we finished up there, that reliance on human wisdom empties the cross of its power. So there was division in the church. We saw that last week. They were not being united in Jesus Christ crucified. Some were following Apollos, some were following Peter, some were following uh, Paul, Jesus. They were divided over who was the more, humanly speaking, wise leader. The one with the better eloquent oratory skills, which was the trend in Corinth. They have these passing speakers come through and they'd speak really well and they'd get a following. And this would, was coming, over, coming across into the church. So this division was emptying the cross of its power as they were focusing on human wisdom rather than the cross of Christ. But Paul says here the power is in the, is in the foolishness of the cross. That's where the power is. There's the power. The message of the cross, Jesus Christ crucified. Power in weakness. And so in verse 19, Paul quites Isaiah 29. And we wonder why. Well, what Paul is 
doing, Paul's making the point that this power in weakness has actually always been God's working, God's way of working, God's plan. In fact, the cross is God's final and climactic way of showing his power and destroying the wise and the intelligent. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying Isaiah points to the cross. The cross does it. The cross is that final climactic way of showing that God's power is actually in weakness. The cross is God's way of destroying the wise and the intelligent, bringing them to their knees. And we'll see in a moment they are put to shame. Now the problem is that we have always, we humans, have always struggled to trust in the way God works. Always struggled with that a bit. Bubble really calls it sin. This power and weakness idea is another example. See, in first century Corinth, this pattern of, uh, of God working in the way he works continues. But there were those who struggled to trust in God's purposes, uh, God's working, his wisdom and power seen through the cross of Christ. The wise man, the scholar, the locals at Corinth, the philosophers of this age... God is actually working against them, destroying such wisdom by the cross of Christ. And so Paul gives two more examples, specific examples. Jews. Jews demand miraculous signs. We see that through the Gospels quite regularly. And Greeks, looks, Greeks look for wisdom. So neither Jews or Greeks in this situation trust in God and his ways. It's either God exists and he must fit into my standards of thinking. He must fit into my philosophy of life. All right? Or, if God does this, then I'm going to believe. You've probably heard that a few times before. If God heals me, or if God heals my daughter, if God does this, then I'm going to believe. If God shows himself to me, then I'm going to believe. If God does this miracle, yes, then I believe. But really, it's a lack of trust in God and his ways. The, the, the cross of Christ. Coming to God on our own terms never ends well. But verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the content of their preaching. Remember that, the humility of the cross. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, everyone. It doesn't, God doesn't discriminate like that. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. We go back to our question though. Why does God work in this way to save. Why does God work in this way to save? Let's move on to the next section. We'll keep that thought in our mind for a moment. See, this overturning of, of worldly wisdom, that's what it is, isn't it? Really, in appearance, it looks foolish, but it's actually wise. It's an overturning of worldly wisdom. Is confirmed in God working in the church at Corinth. Not only does God save through weakness, God saves the weak, uh, th those who come to him in weakness, the nobodies, the lowly, the humble, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, those who come to him in trust, not the somebodies, the wise or powerful, the beautiful or influential. So God's foolishness and God saves the nobodies. Each year, Time magazine uh, puts out the, uh, it's, it's publication, it's journal 
on the world's most influential people. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's got actors and, and business people, sporting people, politicians, uh, and so on. So Michelle Obama gets a run. I think Barack Obama got a run too. Uh, Bruno Mars, Benjamin Netanyahu, name a few. Uh, Sting, yes, hard to believe, I know. Um, that's a joke. Anyway, it's all right. <laughs> Not Sting fans. Someone might be offended by that. I'm sorry about that. Um, Matt Damon gets in there, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jay-Z, even Justin Bieber gets on the world's most influential people. I can believe that, actually. It doesn't say how they influence. It just says influential. Um, at Who, Who magazine, uh, when it was around, uh, put together a most beautiful people issue, if you saw that. Now, friends, if there was a first century version of Time magazine's most influential people, you would not find many of the Corinthian church there. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Uh, the Corinthians are a demonstration of how God saves. See, he doesn't save on the basis of what, say, many immigration departments across the world. They might let people in. For example, uh, more education. Got more degrees? Ah, you can get in. That's okay. I've got two degrees, so I'm looking pretty good. Um, more skills? Uh, more sophistication? Um, more wealth? See, if God chose like that, then many who would come to know Jesus may well have grounds for boasting. I've got two degrees. Ha! I'll be in. No worries. I've done what I needed to do. No. God chose these Christians at Corinth for no reason other than, the, than his grace. That's what God does. These fairly average, uh, weak and foolish by human standards, group of people have been chosen by God himself. What an appearance is weakness and foolishness is in fact wisdom and strength, Paul says. This is the work of God. This shames the wise and the strong. This little group of not very influential people in Corinth, uh, chosen by God, set apart for him. They themselves, they shame the wise and the strong. They're the ones who are righteous and holy before God. Not the high and mighty, not the influential, not the powerful. Now, not wanting to be too honest here, got in a bit of trouble this last service, but I'm going to plough on anyway. Um, but we're not very influential ourselves, are we, by human standards? I don't, I don't think many of us have many PhDs. Actually, I said that in the last service and there were two who had them. <laughs> okay, apart from you two, uh, but, you know, just... We're not, we're not really the cream of the crop. Am I okay to say that? You can have a go at me later on. You know, some are offended. Yeah, Michelle's offended. I'm sorry, my dear. You are the cream of the crop, my dear. Um, yeah, yeah. But here's the point that's being made here in God's word. is that, But in Christ, we are powerful. In Christ, we are rich in every way. Remember that from last week? In Christ, we are wise. So in verse 28, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. 
to make them nothing so that no one may boast before him. Do you see God's reasoning? Do you see what God's doing? Do you see how God works and why? Are you starting to see that? See, God's ultimate reason for his choice is of utmost importance. Verse 29, so that no one would boast. Why does God use the lowly things, the despised things, the humiliation and foolishness of the cross of Christ? Why does he do that? So that no one will boast. So that we will not boast in our own works, in my two degrees, in my wealth, in my education, in my own power, in my own wisdom. Instead, we will boast in Christ alone. Only he can save. Indeed, in Jesus is wisdom from God. You see it in verse 30? Look at verse 30, 31. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. This is what wisdom is. Our holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This wisdom is not like any worldly wisdom. This wisdom, Christ crucified, secures our righteousness. That means when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, our legal standing before God, that's what it is. We are pronounced not guilty. We're righteous before him. When you put, it, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, God, God says, ah, he's with, me. he's with Jesus, he's with me. He's righteous before him. Uh, our holiness, we're set apart. This is wisdom from God. We belong to God. Our redemption, we have a newfound freedom from sin and death, forgiven and set free. Well, finally, not only does God save the nobodies, but he uses nobodies. Why does he use nobodies? Why did he use Paul? Uh, let's find out. God's foolishness. God uses the nobodies. Now, it's a little hard for us to imagine the situation Paul found himself in when he arrived at Corinth. See at verse 1 of chapter 2? When I came to you, brothers. So when he came there, uh, try to imagine that situation. Now, especially in Australian culture, we, we don't have a, a, a great culture, I don't think, of standing up and making, giving speeches and sounding eloquent and oratory skill, like they did in Corinth. Um, eloquence and rhetoric and language and, and holding a crowd. You guys are listening very well. But we don't have that sort of um, culture like that. I think the closest thing that we have that comes to that sort of culture is the stand-up comedian. They're amazing. I wish I could be like that. Um, <laughs> they, they can. I, I was watching uh, the guy from the project, Pete Hellier, the other day. I don't mind him because most of the time he's not rude. I don't like it's cheap laughs, having rude jokes. That's cheap. But he can hold this crowd. He tells a lot of jokes about families and young kids, which is a bit of fun too. Um, I, in, in America, probably the, the I, I think, you look at past presidents, the presidents that are most popular are the ones that give these amazing speeches. Anything? I might be wrong there, but they're, they're eloquent, they deliver a speech, they're confident, they're impressive, they have form. That, that was the context of Corinth at the, at the day. They've got that sort of form, that was trendy and fashionable, and that's what divided the church, following that type of wisdom too. So when Paul came to Corinth, listen to what he resolved not to do. I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testament about God. 
For I resolved to know Christ while I was with you. Uh, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when Paul came to Corinth, he resolved not to fall into the trap of trying to impress the people with form. Like the, the local philosophers and the, the public speakers with oratory skill and impressive rhetoric, uh, relying on human wisdom, that would be a distraction from the message of Christ crucified. For Paul, listen carefully, it was content over form every day of the week. It was content over form. I don't think Paul was necessarily a poor speaker. I cracked a joke about Eutychus, who was the guy who fell asleep on the windowsill as Paul was uh, speaking for hours on end. Um, Paul gets a bad rap, you know. Eutychus might have been tired, who knows. Um, he, Paul was the guy who could, hold, who, who could speak to the Areopagus at Athens, Acts 17, and debate them in front of all these people. He was that guy, and Lystra as well. Read about what he did there. The point is, though, in humility, as a, as a nobody... He resolved to preach Christ crucified, plain and simple. He resolved not to use methods of communication, let's just call them human wisdom, that won applause for the speaker but distracted from the message. So Paul's desire was for his listeners to respond not with, wow, what a marvellous speaker, what a marvellous preacher. His desire was instead that people would respond with, wow, what a marvellous saviour. That's what Paul wanted. That's what any preacher should want, shouldn't they? So these five verses, uh, there looks a lot there, and I've put them up there so you, so you know. We'll whip through it pretty quickly. But these five verses are not only a summary of Paul's preaching and ministry, what he valued, what he resolved to do, but I think too, what do they do? They actually direct us, don't they? They say something to us about what we should resolve as we meet together, um, what we should value in ministry, in church, uh, as we meet together, as we serve, even as we listen to sermons. What should we value? What should we resolve to do? Well, first, Paul proclaimed the testimony about God. Set in verse 1. That is what God has done in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's what we should proclaim. We speak and announce the good news. That's what good preaching is. Uh, it proclaims the good news about Jesus. Remember, remember, right at the start of last year, if you were around then, uh, 1 Peter 1 says, We declare the praises of him who, who uh, called us from darkness into light. We declare the praises. Now, yes, we do this in preaching. I ought to do that in preaching. I try hard to do that in preaching. But we also do it in our gospel conversations, in our relationships. We declare the praises of him who called us. We encourage each other what, to press on, as chapter 1 verse 7 says, as we eagerly await the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Second, Paul's focus is on Christ crucified. Everything Paul did and taught was tied to the cross. We too must be Christ-centred. So not only our content is Christ-centred, but our manner, our style... Our priorities are Christ-centred. How we speak to people, um, how we welcome people, it's got to be Christ-centred. The humility of the cross directs and shapes what we do and say. Third, Paul did not fear weakness, illness or a sense of being overwhelmed. You see that in verse 3? In fact, he writes later on about his time in Corinth. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians, God's power is made perfect in his weakness. 
I don't know, isn't that the truth? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the truth is that experiences of human weakness, illness, uh, being overwhelmed, are occasions when God most greatly displays his power because that's, that's when we rely on him more often as we should. As long as people are impressed by a leader's powerful personality and impressive gifts, well, there is little room for such a leader to impress them with a crucified saviour. i say that again. I think it's really important. See, as long as people are impressed by a leader's powerful personality and impressive gifts, there is little room for such a leader to impress them with a crucified saviour. Priorities out of rack there, you see. Fourth, Paul actively avoided manipulation. Paul's preaching was not with wise and persuasive words or with financial reward. He didn't preach for the sake of the approval of others. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It's up on the screen. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, if he was preaching today, he'd be careful not to use emotion to manipulate. Uh, Paul would be wary about how music can elicit a response. He'd be cautious about not making a name for himself, say on social media, rather than making Jesus known. It's the truth and power of the gospel, content over form, that changes lives. That's what the Spirit works through, we read. Not the glamour of oratory skills or the emotional power of a story or anything else. Why? Oh, so that no one can boast. See, look at verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5 tell us that a cross-centred ministry is characterised by the Spirit's power and evidence of that is... The, is is uh, found in lives that are changed, lives that are transformed. Why does God use the foolishness and the weakness of us, <laughs> of the cross even? Well, look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's throw a few things together to close. The world around us tells us that the Christian message of Christ crucified, the gospel, is foolishness. Probably had those experiences. Uh, the, the cross itself is, is weakness, yeah, yeah. craziness. And they are, of course, right. <laughs> it is. But God's foolishness is, in fact, wisdom. Weakness that saves, foolishness that saves. Foolishness so as we don't for one moment think that our salvation and right standing before God is our doing or based on worldly wisdom. Instead, we simply boast in God and his work, in his power, his wisdom, and that is Jesus Christ crucified. Let me pray and then I'll give you a moment or two to ask a question or make a comment. 
I'll move on. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. Lord, may we trust in your work and your power. Thank you that through the cross, Lord God, you are uh, destroying the wise and the intelligent. Lord, instead, we are that the cross of Jesus Christ shows us your power, your, your grace, your wisdom. Lord, may we depend on that. And indeed, may we boast in Jesus Christ, our Lord, rather than anything else. In his name we pray. Amen.